Small town prejudice puts a traumatized and reclusive woman on trial for murder. Are you just watching episode one thirty one, where the crawl dads sing? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And you know what? I think we're going to have to like fake a southern accent or something. You know, how can we talk about the Carolina marshes without a Carolina <laughs> accent? You know? Well, I I don't know how we're going to do that. <laughs> but the only problem is, is I really can't fake a southern accent. I can <laughs> sometimes do it when I'm speaking to because I came from the south. I don't live in the south anymore. So mm. when I'm around people that have you know that deep southern accent, I can put it on and take it off. But I don't really have a true southern accent. So let's not fake that. <laughs> Okay. I actually, I only live a couple hours from the region of North Carolina where this would have been filmed. Yeah. Or not where it would have been filmed. Actually, I I didn't look to see where this one was filmed. They may have filmed it on location. There are not that many marshes. Where it was based. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm a Yankee. (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> through and through. <laughs> uh, yeah. The first time I lived south of the Mason-Dixon line was uh, in the army. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is the second movie that we have, have reviewed that's in this location because we also did yeah, the Peanut Butter right. Falcon. Yeah. And that's been a lot of time in the marshes and the, the coastal regions of the southeast. So, yeah, yeah. It's, this is... Beautiful area. Yeah. Beautiful area. Yeah. So, this movie is... Based on a book, so it's not a true story. It's kind of a a real-life drama, and it's set in the 50s. No, 60s. Well, yes and yes. (laughs) Yeah, both. (laughs) Yeah, it covers a lot of time. (laughs) So late 50s, early 60s. by that, actually, it goes all the way into the 90s. That's true. That's true, the very end of it, yeah. But we don't want to ruin the end. We're going to talk about... Our, our reactions to the movie without spoiling the end, because there is a Absolutely. bit of a spoiler at the end. We don't want to ruin until we've at least gotten a little ways into the review. If you haven't read the book and you haven't seen the movie, we will warn you that there is something at the end of the movie that we will discuss mm-hmm. that will spoil the end. So just FYI, heads up. I know a lot of our listeners don't seem to care about that. So, oh, well. So the music for this movie was by Michael. Is it Michael or Mikhail? I I think it's Michael. Okay. Michael Dana. And it's a very, what I would call a folk new age crossover. So when you yeah. listen to it, there's a very new agey feel, but then it, it kind of goes into like the ban- banjos and the folk feel as well. So it, it covers both of those very well. It's very atmospheric. It definitely fits the... You know, when, when you're in the marsh, you kind of, the music kind of underlies the atmosphere of being in yeah. the marsh. So yeah. it, it's very atmospheric. And then in the credits, there is a song that is sung by Taylor Swift called Carolina, which basically tells the story of mm-hmm. the movie in lyrics. And it's a very haunting song. And the only thing I've really ever listened other than this is uh, Taylor Swift also teamed up with the Civil Wars to do a song at the end of the Hunger Games that was very similar. Ah, okay. I didn't know that. 
Yeah, it, it's a very cool song, too. It's one of my favorites. So, of course, I was a big fan of the Civil Wars before they were there. So I was like, oh, this is so cool. I, but My first introduction to Taylor Swift was the meme recording. It was the one before TikTok and Twitter. I can't remember what it was. Of mm. the, the cop singing, sitting in his car singing Shake It Off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I don't follow her at all, but I just I know her from the end of the Hunger Games because I was already a big fan of the Civil Wars, and mm-hmm. so this song, the Carolina, is very indicative of the Civil War sound. So, I mean, that was just their sound. They're not a group anymore, unfortunately. Oh, it sadly enough, I really liked their music, but they had a a big falling out and broke up before COVID. Right, actually, yeah, right before they they had released an album and were on their way to start their tour for their new album, and they just suddenly canceled all of their appearances and broke up. Wow. Pretty bad Harsh. one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, this is not about Civil Wars, even though I could talk about them for a while, because I appreciate <laughs> their music. I'll have to check them out. We'll put yeah. a link in the show notes to some of their work. Yeah, they're they're on YouTube. They did a lot of small things, like they would go to to bars that had like live entertainment. So you can find a lot of their live performances on YouTube. They were really quite an interesting couple. Well, they weren't a couple. They were a group. They were both married to somebody else. So, oh, I guess I need to play a little bit of the music, shouldn't I? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. atmospheric as i said before and it sets the mood for a movie that is very atmospheric and i i tell you i went into this without knowing anything about the book i didn't Likewise. i think i'd i i watched a preview and that was it so i was pretty much a newbie going through this and i could tell from the audience that most of the people in the movie were there because they were fans of the book so it is definitely one of those fan favorite movies where people have been. Cl- it was kind of like me with Redeeming Love earlier this year. It's like we mm. it was a. It's a big popular book that everybody wanted to see made into a movie, and then when they make it into the movie, they're ultra critical because it's not the same as the book. Yeah, unfortunately, that, that's with though. any book. Yeah, that's um, what happens. And her game, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah Dune. <laughs> Dune. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lots of them. So. I have the impression, I haven't actually, I put my hands on the book. When I looked on the library, the digital copy had a hundred and something people waiting for it. So I wow. I think it, it would be a long time before I would get my hands on it. But it looks like hmm. from the quotes I found online that it is a very literary fiction, the kind of fiction yeah. that you end up having to study in lit class somewhere along the way. When you say a literary fiction, what what do you mean? I mean, it's I know I compare it to To Kill a Mockingbird and all that, but which is the literary what, fiction? What you, yeah, what are the hallmarks in your mind of literary fiction? 
They're usually very flowery, very descriptive. They spend a lot of time with the words. So it's, it's more of uh, prose based and less character and story based. Okay. So you, you're reading right. it for the sake of the, the, how well crafted the story is from a words and addiction standpoint. So it's so. sort of like Stephen Lawhead's writing versus George R. R. Martin or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just for this, you know, from what I can see, and you can even feel it in the movie, it's like very poetic. It's like yeah, everything yeah. is overly described. Because there's tons of voiceovers in the movie where they're actually quoting directly from the book, from what I can tell. I actually liked the poetic voiceover in the movie mm-hmm. quite a bit. It, it was for me, it was part of what made the movie enjoyable because it it helped provide insight into the you know the protagonist Kaya's mind. Yeah, and it helped me to sympathize with the character throughout the yeah. the whole movie. Yeah, and and. It, like I said, there's a place for it. So I, yeah, I, I kind of got my fill of it when I was getting my degree in English. So it's like now when I read literary fiction, I just feel like the author's trying too hard. But that's just my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I have read stuff where the author was trying too hard. <laughs> I didn't feel like the movie was doing that, but I don't read a lot of literary fiction. Yeah, I'm pretty much a, a sci-fi fantasy guy and church books. You know, yeah. uh, books on faith and and study Theology guides and stuff and, like that. Yeah. So yeah. So I and I think that the, this book is definitely a love it or hate it kind of yeah. book because I can see that. the night I went to see the movie, I met two separate women. One was sitting next to me in the theater. Who, when the movie was over, I asked her, "Have you read the book?" And she was like, "Oh yes, I've read the book." And I says, "Well, was it?" as good as the book or like the book or whatever. And her comment was, "Oh, it it lacked all of the." amazing character development and all of that but Hmm. the story was the same so and then i met another lady later on after i left the theater who had read the book and when i told her i'd gone to see the movie she says well i sure hope the movie was better than the book because the (laughs) book was awful (laughs) so anyway love it or hate it please all the people all the time right (laughs) yeah so the frame of this movie is they're telling almost two stories at once. And the movie starts out with a body being found and the Marsh girl being arrested. And it's her telling her story to the lawyer. So that's the frame mm-hmm. of the movie. I suspect, though I haven't read the book, I suspect the book is more linear. I think it like starts at the beginning and tells it all the way to the climax, which is, would be the murder trial at the end. That would make sense. Just listening to it, I think I prefer the frame of the movie, though. Yeah, I think the frame works, but I read a review of the movie that blasted it, just said that it was all over the place. You couldn't follow it because one minute's in the courtroom and the next minute's in the marsh and she's a little girl and you can't keep up with, you know, it's like bouncing all over the place. And I'm like, well, you didn't watch the same movie I watched because I went into it completely ignorant of the story and I followed it just fine. So you you obviously can't. Maybe the reviewer should have put his phone down instead of uh, (laughs) reviewing. (laughs) Yeah. So other than that, the reviews I've seen showed that said that they thought the casting was all wrong because they picked such a beautiful young woman to play Kaya when if you know about people who live in the marsh their whole lives, they are not pretty people. So Yeah. <laughs> I sort of see that as Hollywood you know, making license for 
you know, the story because you can't have this lovely love triangle if the girl isn't worth two guys chasing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You, you start, especially to, to hook the uh, second guy, Chase, it, Mm -hmm. she really would have had to have been fairy tale beautiful. Yeah. So, I, I mean, the movie was okay for me. I was absorbed enough in the story to be touched by the ending and to have some tears in my eyes when the credits rolled. Mm. So I think that I was involved enough in the story to have ridden it all the way to the end. Yeah. I don't know that it's something I'm going to go like recommending to everybody I meet, you know, oh, you should go see this movie, but it was good. Okay. I enjoyed the movie a great deal. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like I said, I'm not as exposed to, I'm not even an English minor. <laughs> so I, I'm not as, as exposed to the the very literary stuff that you are. So I felt the story was well constructed. I liked the framing. I thought it worked, particularly hinging around the character of Tom, the lawyer, an actor that I have liked in everything I've seen him in. <laughs> You know, it it all worked for me. It felt like John Grisham had written To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that. I, I like Grisham novels, and, and I I really like To Kill a Mockingbird, but I, I like the extra layer of mystery that uh, Where the Crawdads Sing came with. It, and, you know, a good part of this is because I really appreciate it as a, a break from you know the fantastic the the amazing the incredible styles of movies that that we've done recently we've been so heavily entrenched in the MCU and and sci-fi movies and everything mm-hmm. yeah getting to getting back to something that's uh, essentially in a, a motorboat <laughs> was a nice change very down to earth yeah i think we had the same reaction when we did the peanut butter falcon cuz that was yeah. That was one that just felt good. It was just a feel-good movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought that the narration, the the prose, the almost poetic prose, if that makes any sense, mm-hmm. was really nicely chosen. Uh, like I said, you know, it, it provided great insight into the character. And the more that I look back at it, the more things I'm seeing that I missed. Um, for instance... A woolen red cap or a ski cap is a, an important part of evidence in, in the murder trial. And as I was researching for this recording, it occurred to me what the red cap was actually even foreshadowing, which I thought was a really nice touch. So mm. I would recommend it, but I would caveat my recommendation with this may be a movie that you either love or you hate. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's got a definitely a niche audience, I think. It's not something that everybody can sit down and watch. I think it was primarily made for the lovers of the book. Obviously, mm-hmm. since neither of us have read the book and we mostly enjoyed the movie, you a lot, me a little, that it wasn't necessarily restricted to the people. Though, from what yeah. I understand, even reading kind of your viewing notes, I noticed that you were saying maybe this was developed more in the book. Maybe this was developed more in the book. Yeah, so there were some yeah. some holes that I think that were in the movie simply because, I mean, it was over two hours long and there's only so mm-hmm. much you can put in a movie. So they had to leave some of that. Dis- we see that out. all the time. So, mm-hmm. yeah. 
you, you got to choose stuff to cut. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the reasons we buy the DVDs is so that we can see the deleted scenes and see what hit the cutting room floor, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll get directly into our theme analysis, which means that obviously, as we proceed, we're probably going to give away the major spoiler in the movie. So if you're going to keep listening, just beware. We're going to give away who done it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it is a a bit of a murder mystery, so we it's will not we'll, quite knives out, but it's close. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but before we continue, I do want to remind you that you can support our podcast by going to two different places. You can go to areyoujustwatching.com slash Patreon, which will take you to our Patreon account where you can give monthly, or you can go to areyoujustwatching.com slash PayPal, which will take you to our PayPal fund, and you can just give a single gift there or however you want to, to support our podcast. We want to thank our current patrons, Isaiah Santiano, Craig Hardy, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, and Peter Chapman for their generous monthly support. Without them, we couldn't continue to do what we're doing, so we really appreciate them. Thank you very much. All right, so the main theme that we're going to probably spend most of our time on in this Mm. review is talking about small-town prejudice, because that is the leading concept of the leading idea of this movie, the the fact that you have a, a little girl who's 10 years old, abandoned by her family living in the marsh and all the, the town can do is laugh at her and judge her and have nothing to do with her because she's yeah. white trash. And that is unfortunately, I think it's true of any small town to be honest, but I think it's particularly a, something that people, especially small towns in the South, deal with. And I went to school in the Smoky Mountains, which is in the North Georgia area. And I live in upper state Kentucky, but in the eastern, southern corner of Kentucky, it's the same as in North Georgia and in northern Tennessee, eastern Tennessee, the North Carolinas, South Carolina, all those mountainous and marsh areas are filled by a lot of I would guess you say down to earth people, people who Mm. live on the very extremes of civilization. It's like they have uh, homes that were built two, three hundred years ago in the founding, you know, when settlers first came out here and they're still living in those homes that, you know, their great grandfathers and their great, great, great grandfathers built and they're barefoot and they're, they dress in clothing that's handed out by church charity and they can barely speak English. You know, their mm-hmm. their dialect is so strong, most people can't dialect. even understand them. Yeah. And and these are the people that are neglected. And, and I think, to be honest, it's like we spend so much time in our society today talking about the prejudice against people of color. But most of these people are completely invisible and unseen. And yep. – their abject poverty, if you went and saw where they lived, it would just break your heart. The black people who who say they are oppressed in the slums of big cities have, are rich in comparison to the way some of these people live. And it's a problem that has existed for a 100 years or more in the Appalachia. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, this story is a story about one little girl, but these people that live in the marsh and these people that live in these mountain communities in Appalachia and in some of these 
dirt poor towns that, you know, they may have like 20 people in them. This is a way of life for a lot of people that are completely invisible to our society today. They probably don't have cell phones. They barely have radios. They probably don't have TV. They're completely isolated from the rest of the world and people don't even know they exist. And it's sad. Yeah. I'm going to get off my soapbox in a minute, but this, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of met this when I was in college because I went to a college that is in Northwestern Georgia that is actually founded as a school for Appalachian Mountain children. And through the years it developed and became a, a private college but the original act of charity that created the school was a rich young girl who came face to face with dirty little mountain children and that couldn't read. And she wanted to educate them. And she would literally go to their parents and beg them to let her have their kids for, you know, hours, several hours a day so that she could teach them how to read and yeah stuff. So, um, Having gone to that college and, and having heard the story of where, how it was founded and, and, you know, the heart that this young woman had for these neglected people and these neglected children, it just, to me, I brought that into the story when I watched the movie. It's like this little girl who, yeah, when she went to school and they laughed at her and she just ran away because even though she had every right to be there, she couldn't deal with the prejudice. And so she didn't learn to read. She didn't. Mm-hmm. All of her education was living in the nature, and that was all she knew. And as a culture and a society, we need to quit letting people like that be invisible. We have to see them. We have to know they exist and do what we can to take care of them. A scripture story just came to my mind, Second Kings 2, 23-25. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel as he was walking up the path. Some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, chanting, Go up, Baldy! Go up, Baldy! He turned around and looked at them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the children. I bring this up because I wanted to talk about cruelty from children. Yeah. And a lot of times that cruelty is learned from their parents, so you can't just blame the children. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it is a learned trait. So you mentioned the scene earlier where Kaya tries to go to school. Because she heard there were free meals there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This was after her father left, right? No, it was before. Was it, it was before? When she, yeah, yeah. She had gone to the store with her father and her, they were oh, just buying right. the essentials. And, this, yeah. and they said that, you know, you can get a full meal if you go to school. So The teacher innocently or semi-innocently tries to assess her education level, but she does it in front of the whole class and asks Kaya to spell God, which Kaya mm -hmm. turns around and spells D-O-G, which mm -hmm. is a really common mistake, especially if you happen to have dyslexia. It suggests that she has dyslexia there, but later on in the movie where when suddenly his name escapes me, Tate, Mm -hmm. is teaching her to read. There doesn't seem to be any evidence of it. But anyway, yeah. when but she- you have to remember, this is a fictional story, so sometimes yeah. things can be inconsistent. Yeah. It may be clearer in the book. I'm okay yeah. with that. But the kids, wow. I mean, the cruelty that they show this 
clearly disadvantaged child in the classroom is shocking and angering. You've, and, it's been a while since you've been in school, hasn't it? <laughs> yes. Yes, it has. Because <laughs> I remember and, kids being very cruel in schools. <laughs> Didn't I, surprise me at all. I remember kids being cruel when, you know, they weren't overseen, mm-hmm. when they weren't in front of adults. Put a kid away from supervision and they'll always go back to their base nature, which is sinful, of course. Right. Yeah. But – I mean, this scene was all in front of the teacher, and the teacher didn't do anything. And Kaya turns around and, like you said, runs out. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to bring this up because cruelty in the Bible, it's very clear. It's among the sins that God curses people for. In Genesis 49, 7, God curses Jacob's sons through Jacob's dying pronouncement. Simeon and Levi, their anger is cursed, for it is cruel. I will disperse them throughout Jacob and scatter them throughout Israel. And it's so important that we are not cruel to one another. So hospitality is an important part of how we're supposed to reflect Christ's love. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew seven twelve, Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. I mean, we all learned that one growing up, right? Do unto others mm-hmm. as you would have them do unto you. And I could always it's, remember the comeback. Well, they're mean to me, so I should be mean to them. <laughs> exactly. It's not doing <laughs> others how they do unto you. Um, but the the important part here is that Jesus says, for this is the law and the prophets. And this goes all the way back to the very first recording of the Bible by Moses in Deuteronomy 10, 19 through 20. It says, you are also to love the resident aliens since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. You are to fear the Lord your God and worship him, remain faithful to him and take oaths in his name. Here, the scripture is is making it part and parcel of Fearing, loving, and worshiping God. Yeah. How you treat others. I am ashamed of some of the stuff that I've said. I I tend to go into self-derogatory humor frequently. And mm-hmm. sometimes when I'm with people that I am very comfortable with, good friends, we'll sort of make fun of each other, which is a lot of, uh, you know, the army in me. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it goes too far. And I I don't mean to hurt anyone's feelings, but it's just a reminder that that this is the word. <laughs> this is part of the gospel is loving the resident alien. Yeah. So that's my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had mine, so you can have yours. Yeah, <laughs> the cruelty that is going on in this town and – you know, it, it's easy to say, well, this is fiction. She kind of blew it out of proportion to make it, mm. you know, work in the story or whatever. But I've been in enough small towns in the South to know that this was not in, by any means blown out of proportion. This is the way a small town treats an outsider. And yeah. it is unfortunate that something like this is so true. Kids are cruel anyway. We have to say, I don't think we've said it yet. This, well, I think we did say it that this, this whole story is set back in the late fifties, early sixties. Yeah. So it is yeah. a different era back then. 
but I don't know that things have really gotten any better. They've just changed in how mm. the, the ostracization works. Yeah. Now, I just read something that somebody posted on Facebook that there's an entire county, I'm not entirely sure which state it's in, that has completely banned all cell phones from their school. Wow. Good for them. Well, they said that there is just become such a tool for abuse mm-hmm. of each other and and of their time and their attention. And so they're just like, you can't have a cell phone. If you have it, it has to be often in your bag. And it can't be turned on till the end of school. So it creates issues, obviously, because parents like to have, you know, that leash on their kids. But at the same yeah. time, that phone has a camera on it. It can be used to film other students and make fun of them. Mm-hmm. And, and all of these WeChats and all these stuff, they can be talking about each other behind the teacher's back. I mean, it just it gives so much more room for that cruelty to happen. And and as I spoke about in another review I did on 13 Reasons Why, oh, uh, yeah. which I did solo, it shows how that kind of mentality can actually drive children to commit suicide. So it's it's a terrible problem that we still have in our schools today, the cruelty of kids and, and how that is enacted upon each other. And in, in the instance of this movie, it's only a very small scene, but it has lasting impact on Kaya because she's a 10-year-old girl whose mom leaves, whose siblings leave, and eventually her dad leaves. And she's left to fend for herself in the marsh because she's already been taught the cruel lesson that that town will have nothing to do with her. Yeah. So she has nobody to turn to for help. And in the midst of the trial, the attorney actually speaks to the jury with this comment. And I think it's a very powerful quote. Yet in reality, she was only an abandoned child, a little girl surviving on her own in a swamp, hungry and cold. But we didn't help her, except for one of her only friends jumping. Not one of our churches or community groups offered her food or clothes. Instead, we labeled and rejected her because we thought she was different. But ladies and gentlemen, did we exclude Miss Clark because she was different? Or was she different because we excluded her? I do want to say that I appreciate that the one couple that treated her with respect, particularly the wife, Mabel, specifically because of the Bible. The issue is, is that this town basically did not help. This was a little girl living on her own. She was known because she did come into town. She she came to Mabel and Jumpin' store to get grits because she didn't know how to live without grits. I thought that was one of the more humorous lines in the movie. <laughs> but they were very judgmental. There was this constant, well, a young girl living alone is immoral. And, mm. you know, that she has a weakness of character because she's a woman living by herself. So some of that is the era in which this happened. I mean, young women did not live by themselves and take care of themselves back in that time. But they do a lot more nowadays. <laughs> yeah. But – that was a level of judgment that comes from what I would consider Christianese. It's not really Christian view. It's It comes out of the judgmental nature of the Christian church, not necessarily out of a biblical faith. And sometimes you, especially in the era that we're discussing, you have to separate those because a lot of people, yeah. church was the country club. It was where you went to meet the inn people. Everybody who was anybody went to church, and that was where oh, you yeah. And that's a very Southern thing. I mean, it's not just Southern, but it is much more prominent <laughs> in Southern churches. Right, right. And even in my era, when I was raised back in the 80s and 90s, we saw a lot of that. You know, the 
the central church and, you know, the first Baptist church or the central Baptist church or the yep. big church in middle of town. That was where all the good people in town went to. And <laughs> they didn't let the bad people in town go there because yeah, can't that's have only that. where the, yeah. Mm. So, so to me, that's Christianese. That's not really being a yeah. Christian. That's going through the motions of Christianity for the sake of being, it's like, it's really kind of the condemnation of all of the Sermon on the Mount where, you know, Jesus kept saying, mm-hmm. you know, you do this to be seen by men and that's your reward, which. Yeah. It's so much easier to stand back and pass judgment. Right. Nobody steps forward and attempts to help. Which just makes Jumpin' and Mabel stand out all the more as the uh, hidden heroes of the movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they actually loved on her. They even warned her when the Child Protective Services was going to yeah. come looking for her. So. so Christians are supposed to help the poor and needy. I mean, that is that actually comes out in the movie Mabel Quotes Scripture. I don't know. I think this actually shows up in, in several places, but I have it from Matthew 25, 37 through 40, then the righteous will answer him. And this is part of a parable that Jesus is is teaching. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So that's a reminder that we're supposed to be treating everybody as Christ in our life, you know, doing unto the least of them what we would do if we were to meet Jesus in need. And that is the reminder from that that parable in Matthew. And then and Christians are also ordered not to pre- prejudge or to have prejudice among each other. And that's in James 2, 1 through 4. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I think that's one of the most Hmm. painful pieces of scripture. I, I love the book of James because it has James a lot of is so that in blunt. There. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause he goes on to say in this passage that, you know, that aren't aren't the rich people the ones that throw you in prison? Why do you hold them to such esteem? <laughs> and that's literal. I mean in this movie it's the wealthy people in this town that throw Kaya into prison. And the ones who betray her. Right. Yeah. Over and over again. So it's it's yeah. super sad that, you know, that that is the story of this movie is the small town prejudice that they they leap to a case that literally has no evidence of murder. Mm-hmm. We know because we've watched the end of the movie. We know that he was murdered and we know who did it. But looking at it from just the evidence, they don't even have enough evidence to go to trial on this thing. Oh, yeah. It's it's and all circumstantial. And they're asking for the death penalty. Yeah, yeah. I was so surprised so, to find that Kaya had a butler who did it. <laughs> You're being funny. I, I'm trying anyway. Yeah. I did want to point out that nothing is ever, you know, black and white isn't the real way to put it, but 
there is some responsibility to be born here by the way Kaya's parents raised her and the other kids. It would appear that they did not make any effort to be members of the community either. Yeah. Kaya's mom said, your first response to anything should be to run. Specifically, she said, and this is where the the title of the movie comes from, run and hide deep in the marsh, right out where the crawdads sing. So I stress this because as parents, we need to remember to raise our children in the way they should go so that they develop those social skills too. Yeah. It's interesting because – I've recently joined a group on Facebook that is a fan group for the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter. And I was curious, you know, just to see what people were saying about those attractions outside of the controlled spaces, because there's a lot of controlled spaces for those. And there was a gentleman who posted in that group that he wanted to take his grandkids to the Ark Encounter, but he was concerned about the fact that they portrayed dinosaurs living at the same time as people. And he, and and as he said in his comment, my Bible doesn't have dinosaurs in it. And he obviously got jumped on because it was a fan group. So everybody's fans <laughs> of, you know, that concept. But I got to thinking about it. And I was like, you know, even if you take somebody somewhere where you don't necessarily agree with everything they say. Yeah. It's helpful from a social standpoint to be able to expose yourself to ideas that are different than what you personally believe. Because if you don't, you don't develop a way to defend your own personal worldview against that. Yeah, I mean, sure, if, right. if he wants to believe in the in an old earth and that dinosaurs died out billions of years before people, that's fine. But he should expose himself to the other perspective. And it certainly won't hurt his ch- grandchildren to be exposed because they're getting it at the millions of years everywhere else. And and if he's not able to expose them to worldviews that they don't agree with and teach them how to combat that, then they're ill-equipped to deal with all the other things that attack the Christian worldview in our society and culture today. If you can't defend your worldview against something as, as he said, silly as having dinosaurs living at the same time as people, Mm-hmm. And and you put that into the context of what you're talking about here, where these children were sheltered away from society. They weren't able to to live in the world that, you know, existed in that town because their parents never taught them how to deal with the rejection that they would get because of who they were. Yeah. You know, that whole circular thing is, is it even attacks, you know, I'm dare I say it homeschoolers and I I absolutely dearly mm-hmm. love all of the homeschooling families that I know now people who have had oh, the yeah. courage to to remove their kids from the public schools and teach them themselves that is spectacular they're courageous they're brave and I think they should keep doing it especially as our schools get worse and worse however the kids are so easy to pick out though and pick on because they're <laughs> so much better educated than the public school kids <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And this, I think they're getting better at in the homeschooling community, because when I was young, the homeschoolers were really, really weird. I mean, you could always tell them they were uh, yeah. they were just like the, the super weird kids. And now they're not quite so weird as they used to be. They need to be better the, socialized. The, the programming that's available to them is so much better on a larger scale. I mean, back when we yeah. were kids – homeschooling was much less regulated. And Mm -hmm. now, you know, the homeschool kids, 
can join sports teams and they can mm-hmm. participate in clubs and, and everything like that. So it, it is so much better situation now than it was 40 years ago. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I'm, I'm seeing a definite improvement in that and as it's become more and more popular. But it is a reminder to, you know, parents who keep their kids at home that they do need to be exposed to the world or they won't know how to deal with the world. And that yeah. was what I saw so much in the homeschooling that existed when I was a child that the, the kids would, when they left home, they would completely abandon everything they were raised in. So the entire purpose of keeping them home and homeschooling them was then counteracted by the fact that when they got out in the world, they were completely in sh- culture shock, like complete culture shock. And then when they mm-hmm. realized how great the world was, they wanted to be in the world and completely spurn everything that they had been raised in. And yeah. so it's it's just a reminder that you have to be able to teach them the things that you don't want them to do so that they understand it when they encounter it outside of your protection as a parent. Mm-hmm. If I don't know whether any of that made sense, but Yeah, it it did. Yeah, it reminds yeah. me a lot of the Amish. They do that one year away from the the Amish culture and it either fails or it doesn't based on how the parents raise the kid to uh, mm-hmm. to understand their place in this world. Mm-hmm. So, the prejudice of this town is, as we've already said, it's very realistic. It really does exist that way. There really are people like Kaya and her family who are invisible to the rest of the world. They really do exist. They are very needy people who are also very proud and insular, and they're just as prejudicial outsiders coming into their communities Mm -hmm. as our communities are of them entering them. So there is definitely, I know of whole mission fields that that's their entire focus is trying to reach, you know, these invisible peoples for the Lord. And they need the Lord just as much as, as everybody else does. Okay. So moving on from that, we do want to remind you that you can connect with us. If you are listening to this podcast. I don't know how you're listening to it, whether you are on our website or if you're on Spotify or Apple or Amazon or many of the other places that you can listen to our podcast. If the subscription option is available, we do encourage you to subscribe. And uh, we want you to join our Discord community, which if you were here, you could be listening to us live while we are recording in our Discord chat, or you can uh, interact with us in our mini discussion panels that we have in Discord. You could also connect with us on uh, Facebook, which both of those, if you go to our website, you can type in areyoujustwatching.com slash community, and that will take you to Facebook. Or you can type in areyoujustwatching.com slash Discord, and that will give you an invite to our Discord server. And you will need an account to join Discord, but it is free. It doesn't cost anything. And it's not quite so time-wasting, I think, as like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or all of those. Fewer rabbit holes. Yeah, fewer rabbit holes to chase. Yeah. Well, it doesn't – you don't have like this news feed where you're like following everything being thrown at you. You go to a server and you can just be in that server so you don't have to see everything else that's going on. So we would appreciate if you would review us as well, if you 
have that opportunity wherever you're listening to us. The reviews do help. And if you can at all manage, we do appreciate it if you would share our podcast with other people. We don't do any advertising. So the only way that our podcast is going to grow is if you share it with your friends and family, people that you know who are Christians and who like a good movie discussion, just share this podcast with them. We would really appreciate it. All right. So our next theme is kind of a hodgepodge of ideas, but I think it all kind of fits together because there is a a sense of this movie of the swamp and the marsh where Kaya grows up almost being a character in the movie. It's like it's not yeah. just a location. It's an actual character in the movie because Kaya speaks of it as if it's the parent that that takes over when her parents leave. She learns yep. from it. It provides her needs. I mean, she goes clamming so that she can, you know, sell the clams to get the staples that she can't mm-hmm. get out of the marsh. She raises herself in the marsh because the marsh, whenever she stumbles, it it picks her up and carries her. So it is like a character in the movie, but it is also a justification because she she says at one point, and it's actually repeated twice in the movie, you know something is important if it's repeated twice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at the beginning and at the end, this quote is made. It says, a swamp knows all about death and doesn't necessarily define it as tragedy, certainly not a sin. So this is the the framework upon which this murder that occurs in the swamp, this body that is found is justified because the swamp Mm -hmm. knows all about death and it's not a tragedy and it's not a sin because nature is red in tooth and claw. That is the evolutionary view of nature that has been that fundamental to how we study nature for yeah. Uh, since since Darwin, really, probably before Darwin. Survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest, exactly. It's the justification for whatever it takes to survive, mm-hmm. that's what you do. And it is a justification for the murder in this movie. So the person that is murdered, the, the body that is found at the beginning of the movie is Chase Andrews. He's discovered by two little boys laying at the bottom of a, is it a watchtower? I couldn't quite figure out what that was. It it was a fire tower. Fire tower. Okay. Yeah. And there's no evidence that it was a murder. He he fell off the tower, obviously, landed on his back and died. And they don't know that it's a murder, but the circumstantial evidence that they used to claim that it was a murder was that there were no footprints and that there were no fingerprints on the tower. So they assumed that somebody cleared yeah. away the evidence. So the lack of you know, evidence I, was their evidence. <laughs> this is one of those cases where I wonder if the book, you know, it made it so that there was more evidence that pointed to Kaya's guilt before they charged her. The The movie definitely makes the prejudice seem like the primary reason to charge her. Right. I I feel like that might be different in the book. But since neither of us have read it, we can't speak to that. Exactly. (laughs) So that's the way we're presenting it. Maybe somebody who's read the book would chime in in our Discord channel and let us know how well we've represented that, because we don't know. Yeah. But we do find out at the very end of the movie, I already said we were going to spoil this, that Kaya did kill him. But... 
it wasn't a cold-blooded murder. Well, we don't know that it wasn't a cold-blooded murder. It was a justified mm. murder, at least the way they present it in the movie because uh, – Yeah, it's, it's sort of and, hard to say that though. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is hard to say that. Yeah, it was cold-blooded. It was premeditated. It was somewhat yep. justified. It was clearly justified in her mind. Right. And that's important. From the standpoint of nature and survival of the fittest and the the marsh not caring about death and not seeing death as a sin, all of that was the justification for why she did the murder. I'm sorry. We should point out for those who are not going to see the movie and have never read the book that not only does she develop this sense that the marsh has raised her, but after she's taught to read by Tate, the, the man who eventually becomes her husband, she makes a very good living mm-hmm. from becoming a, a naturalist and documenting her observations of marsh animals. She does, I think it were up like five books in the, the bookstore window, birds mm-hmm. and insects and mushrooms and exactly yeah. so it's very easy to see how the character of kaya would come to almost consider you know the marsh or nature itself as being almost deific well i haven't read the book but i've spent the last couple of days reading quotes from the book and there mm-hmm. is an extensive quote that shows up quite a bit online about her naturalistic observation of the praying mantis. Oh, yeah. The the interesting thing about the praying mantis, which appears not at all in the movie, but it is something that seems to be very pivotal in the book, is that the praying mantis eats her mate. So whenever you see a praying mantis, say she, because it's a female, the males exist only to, to breed and die. Let me throw an interesting aside in there. Mm-hmm. We have praying mantises on our property. Uh, specifically, we have the Carolina praying mantis on our property. <laughs> As it turns out, the female only eats the male about half the time. <laughs> or only so about the male half the male. the goes in with a 50-50 chance, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I just wanted to point that out because yeah. it, it's an important part of the movie. It's not quite accurate, but it plays yeah. so well. And it's it yeah. was really an excellent use of foreshadowing. Yeah. So the reason why we've kind of beat around this bush, if you haven't seen the movie or read the book, the reason why Kaya killed Chase was because he had become not only abusive to her, but he had raped her twice. And the sexual assault, the fact that she was now living terrified of him finding her, she had been raised by an abusive father. It was the reason why her mother and siblings left. She knew what abuse did. She knew what abuse felt like. And she didn't want to partake in it anymore. And when she realized that she wasn't going to get rid of Chase, that he was going to keep coming back and hurting her, I think that was how, how she, from the swamp and marsh point of view, she had justified this, the, you know, this just she needed to remove him from her way. And she premeditated it because it's not brought out in the movie quite so much, but they talk about all of all of her alibis. You know, she went to Asheville to meet her publisher. Mm -hmm. She left the day before the murder. 
She had dinner with her publisher the night of the murder. She had breakfast with her publisher the morning after the murder. She established a ton of alibi. So the only way she could have actually done the murder was to plan ahead to be seen publicly leaving town on the bus. And then she had to sneak back into town on the bus, lure him mm-hmm. to his death, then sneak back out of town, back to Asheville, <laughs> and then be publicly seen having breakfast with her publisher. So yeah. it was definitely premeditated. She thought it all out. But like the, the quote, one thing I learned from Pa, these these men have to have the last punch. Yeah. And everything she's learned from the marsh and from the swamp. And, you know, the swamp knows all about death. And and uh, I don't know if there's a dark side to nature, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It, it is entirely consistent for her to do what she did, including all the planning and the implementation. Right. I thought it was a really well-written and well-adapted demonstration of motive, means, and opportunity. Right. Yeah, because her, even her husband didn't know she did it until after she died of old age. Yeah. Like, years and years later, he finds the necklace that was was the leading missing piece of evidence in the trial. You know, where did Chase's uh, shell necklace that, that Kaya had given him, where where had it gone? And nobody ever found it. And as Chase's mother said on the stand, Kaya was the only one that would have had a reason to take it. And they searched her belongings for it. They searched her house for it. They couldn't find it. And it was missing all the way up until Tate finds it in the back of her, was it sketchbook? Mm-hmm. Hidden in the binding of the book after she had passed away. So, you know, they it's way to, to you know, bury it. You know, th- oh, she got off. You were cheering when they said not guilty, that she got off. This poor, innocent girl had been accused of murder and she got free. They could. They didn't have enough evidence to convict her. Even a town that was prejudged to hate her, they didn't have enough evidence to convict her. And and she had done it. I mean, the whole time she had done it. So getting to scripture on this, one of the things that I think is really kind of contrasted in this whole story is the natural versus the moral. So mm. as a creationist, I believe that the natural is cursed by sin. So I, yeah. I come at it from God created a perfect world. Nature was perfect. And then man sinned. And that sin had an effect on nature. So the natural is not moral because the natural is cursed by sin. So we see that red and tooth and claw. And we see that, you know, the the things that happen in nature that are just not the way we consider moral law to work. I mean, animals are not moral creatures. They they kill each right. other indiscriminately and out of innocence at the same time because they are innocent and, and cursed at the same time. And mm-hmm. so when we speak of the law, then we have to speak of the law, not as the law given to the Israelites, because that was the definite this is right, this is wrong, this is how you should behave, that God gave the Israelites. But the rest of the world didn't have that. They had a law that was written on their hearts. And Romans speaks to that. Mm-hmm. So in Romans two twelve through 16, it says, For all who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, 
but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their conscience confirms this. Their competing thoughts either excuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret, according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. So it's a difficult passage. I sometimes Paul spoke in circles, so it was difficult <laughs> sometimes to understand him. Basically, what he's saying is, is that even Gentiles who were not raised with the law that the Israelites had, the Jews have, they had God's law written on their hearts. Yep. And it's a conscience that every human being has. And regardless of what observing nature teaches us, we instinctively know in our hearts when something is right or wrong. So Kaya might use the justification that the marsh taught her that there was no tragedy and no sin and death. To survive, she had to get Chase out of her life, and so she killed him. Mm-hmm. She could justify that all she wanted by what she saw in the marsh. But even a 10-year-old child raised without a lot of human interaction still has the conscience on her heart to know that what she did was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the times when you read this particular passage in Romans, it's very accusatory. But I see it as as great news because it means mm-hmm. that there have been – Aborigines in the Amazon who came to know Christ without ever meeting a a missionary, a missionary, yeah. and all those people who lived before Abraham had the opportunity to come to understand God. Because I also believe in in predestination, but there is nothing we can do to contribute to our own salvation. Mm-hmm. We are completely and utterly dead. I mean, we can't even reach out and grab the lifesaver. God literally plucks us out of death to worship him. And you can be raised the way that Kaya was raised by the swamp and by the marsh and still come to the conclusion because God has has reached out and drawn you to him. When Job is arguing with his friends who are telling him, just do, just give up, he tells Zophar, but ask the animals and they will instruct you. Ask the birds of the sky and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth and it will instruct you. Let the fish of the sea inform you. Which of all of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? For me, it just, it really speaks to all creation is part of that writing of the law on your heart. Mm-hmm. How can you look at a mountain range and, or a sunrise or a sunset or hear a child laugh or any number of other things that just speak absolute and utter beauty to you and not think God did that? Yeah, and at the same time, not just the utter beauty, but the judgment that we see in nature as well. Because yeah. I, I think oh, it's yeah. a, it's sad when people go, "Oh, look at the beauty of creation," and that, and that speaks to God. 
But we don't see a beautiful creation anymore. We see a cursed creation because mm. of sin. So yes, Imagine there is Imagine how much and, more beautiful it's going to be. <laughs> right. It, it was beautiful, and there are aspects of it today that are beautiful, but it's also red in tooth and claw. There's a lot of really disgusting things that happen in nature, and that speaks to God's judgment. And mm-hmm. so we see both the beautiful hand of the creator and at the same time the firm hand of the judge when we look at nature and we see both of those aspects of God. And so, yeah, not only does the birds of the sky instruct you about the beauty of nature, but they instruct you about the judgment because that's what Job was talking about. I mean, yeah, exactly. Job was not talking about the beauty of nature when he was making that passage. No, he was being uh, judged in a horrible way. And so, yeah, that is definitely a good reminder that, the living nature that we perceive and see, atheists and humanists and evolutionists will use nature as an excuse for a lot of really sinful behaviors. I think that even homosexuality is defended because, oh, well, animals do it. You see homosexuality yeah. among the animals. So it must be natural. So that must means it's okay. You know why they latched on to that? Because Christians tried to step away from scripture. To mm-hmm. defend their position. Homosexuality doesn't exist in nature. Well, it does, but that's because nature is every bit as affected by sin as, <laughs> as humanity is. Yeah. Humanity, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll move on. Uh, we want you to remember to share your feedback. You can comment in the show notes for this episode, which will be at areyoujustwatching.com slash 131. You can also call us at 513-818-2959, send a text or leave a voicemail. You can email feedback at areyoujustwatching.com. Or as I said earlier, you can come to one of the social media sites where Tim and I interact. You'll have a better chance of catching us in Discord than you will Facebook these days. So that's how you can connect with us. We do like to hear from our listeners. We especially like it when you come in and listen to us live so that we can interact with you. Indeed. All right. So one of the things that you had commented about earlier on is the things that you really loved about this movie was how beautiful the the prose and poetry was of the movie in itself. And there really was a lot of really insightful things said with a lot of unnecessary words, but that's just my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) I am poetic. There's a part of me that's poetic. I used to write poetry when I was in high school and college. I do understand the importance of words. And so I can appreciate the flowery language of the movie and the book. So I, I get where you're coming from on this one. I appreciate that. There are a number of times in Where the Crawdads Sing where it really it emphasizes the importance of words. And that resonated with me partly because, you know, what we do here is is all words. We do the recording with Eve and I talking and, and discussing and sometimes even agreeing. But then we go and uh, try to write the show notes in, in such a way that it that it helps to emphasize our point. And the way we communicate is really so important. When Christ raised Lazarus, he did it by commanding Lazarus to come forth. Christ used communication so skillfully, it, it really just emphasizes how important it is that we communicate 
effectively. And I thought the movie did that very well. And it actually says it at one point when Tate is teaching Kaya to read. She turns to Tate in amazement and says, I didn't know words could hold so much. And they really do. Yeah, I think his response was not all words do, but this sentence was a particularly good sentence. (laughs) Yeah. So. And, you know, they show it different ways in the movie. One particular way that resonated with me was Kaya says in, in one of her voiceovers, I feel them not here which was a a really powerful way for me to describe loneliness after my son died in in the mid-90s. That really described how I missed him. You know, it wasn't that he just wasn't there, but I could feel his absence in such a powerful way. And I feel them not here just so drove in that feeling to me. And at one point, uh, Tate's father is trying to provide advice to Tate that Tate doesn't necessarily want to hear, and and you can understand why. But Tate's dad says, hey, it's my job to say all the things that people don't like to talk about. And that is Mm -hmm. exactly true. (laughs) Yeah. When when we're holding each other accountable, it's our job to do that, and we don't want to do it. I particularly am not fond of conflict, (laughs) but, you know, that's what we're called to do. And there's one scene because, you know, this is set in the 50s and 60s and a little bit in the 70s where they highlight the racism and Mm -hmm. that I'm pretty sure the character that was saying this was the social services guy Mm -hmm. talking to Jumpin' in the store. Yeah. Yeah. And Jumpin' tells him that he hasn't seen her or something like that. And the guy says, you don't have any reason to lie to me, do you, boy? And that just drove home the fact that this guy didn't see Jumpin' as a whole human. Yeah. What was that? Psalm is like three-sevenths of a of – a, or four-fifths or three-fifths of a, a, a man. Well, that you have to put some context on that because – I hear that misused as they didn't believe they were a person, but actually the concept of that, if you go back and study it, was was had to do with the representation in government. It meant that if the South... Right, the census. Yeah, the census, if the South could count all of their slaves as people, then it would increase their representation in government. They would actually get more representation, more say in government, but yet none of those people could vote. Mm -hmm. So it would give the masters more say by using the bodies of their slaves without them actually being represented, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and in increasing slave trading to give themselves even more power. Right. So that was the reason why they counted them as less than a person, was they were trying to decrease the power of the slaveholding South. It wasn't that they yeah. didn't want the black people to be counted as full people. It was that they didn't have exactly. the, the representation that their status gave them or something like that. So yeah, in that, a way, a it, point. it makes sense. I mean, they weren't necessarily trying to dehumanize the slaves. They were trying to decrease the political power of the South was yeah. what they were trying to do. And the the slaveholders were – they didn't need any help dehumanizing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There was one other 
place in the movie where the importance of what you say was really highlighted. And that was the effect of Tate breaking his promise Mm -hmm. to Kaya had on her. And I like the point when, when he comes back, eventually she does say he begs for her forgiveness and she says, I don't know how to forgive. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, I was, I I was 100% behind Kaya on that. Tate really, he really, really messed up. Yeah. It, It was nice to see him, so contrite though yeah yeah i think he had good reasons he understood that he couldn't pull her out of the marsh and he was having a hard time as a young man with his whole life ahead of him trying to figure out how he was going to balance his love for her when he couldn't remove her from the swamp when he had he wanted to do something with his life you know and Mm -hmm. yeah he did it wrong i'm not trying to justify it he did it wrong but Thank you very much for pulling that scripture, James 3, 7 through 12. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. And that just really speaks to the power of our language to our witness. Yeah. And then in Matthew 5, 33 37, another part of the Sermon on the Mount, we keep going back to that. <laughs> Just beautiful teaching in that. Yeah. I think it's kind of like a condensment of a lot of Jesus's preaching all in in one single place in the scripture. And it's just so deep, so many good things in there. But anyway, 533-37 says, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. And that speaks to, you know, keeping your promise. I mean, so many people will swear by something, but then they don't keep their promise. And it's much more important to always be a person of your word. And you don't have to swear because people know that when you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it. Yeah. So. Thank you. I, I wanted to really talk about the the impact of the the words and the writing in this particular movie. I thought it really helped to, to highlight how important what we say yeah. is. And that's one of the reasons why I have in the past, I don't have the well committed anymore, but I memorized the Sermon on the Mount and I memorized the book of James because Mm -hmm. I have in my youth and still to this day struggled with things coming out of my mouth that shouldn't be said. And it's something that I know is is a failing on my own. And so I turn to scripture to help me with that. And those passages are very important to me because Words are a very crucial part of our witness. And when we speak without thought, when we let things come out on our tongue that should never be spoken by anyone, let alone a Christian, we are doing the work of Satan. And that is 
Absolutely. Uh, something that we just should be more mindful of. So there was one very quick last thing that I wanted to comment on. It's very easy to convict Kaya's father and her. The man is badly abusive, has a horrible temper, drinks a lot. But we would do well to remember that for most people, there are reasons that they have gone down that path. And we see hints in where the crawdad's saying that Kaya's father is actually suffering from PTSD. We learn that he was in the army and many of the scenes with her father take place just a few years after World War II. So I mention this because while it's so easy to look at the character of Kaya's father from the audience and say, well, that man is pure evil. We need to remember that the people who are this way in real life, they're usually this way because of things that have happened to them. They're hurting. We need to remember that and we need to include that in our loving of them. Right. That doesn't mean that they're not going to be subject to God's justice. Mm Mm-hmm. If they don't get covered by Jesus' sacrifice, then they're going to suffer the wrath. But we're called to love them. And part of that loving is understanding what drives them and what motivates them and why they are the way they are. So let's let's remember not to convict, (laughs) not to just write them off as pure evil and not worthy of demonstrating the gospel. Well, everybody has the opportunity to hear the gospel, and we're not the arbiters of whether or not they will be saved, thankfully. God is. And that just, you know, takes us back to our first theme, you know, that we're not to prejudge people. Mm -hmm. Prejudice is wrong in every way that it is presented. It is just not something Christians should be doing. Well, that concludes our review of Where the Crawdads Sing. I don't know that we've chosen what we're doing in September yet. We're actually getting this one recorded in July, but it will be for August. Um, we, we both had some things that were going to uh, keep us busy heavy in com- August. Heavy commitments in August. <laughs> yes. So we're getting this episode out early, but we will let you know in Discord and in Facebook what we are planning to do for September before we record for that. And we hope you will join us live in Discord next time we record. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And don't just watch. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts christianpodcastcommunity.org.